This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to Go Bronx Podcast, episode 25. I'm Olga Luz. And I'm Angel. Today we are going to talk about the history of transportation in the Bronx. The Bronx is a vibrant metropolis with a robust transportation system. We live in a borough of elaborate subway and bus routes, and even the legacy of ferry travel has made its way back into Bronx society after so many years. Modes of travel have indeed evolved in the Bronx over the centuries. We tend to think that rapid mass transportation in the Bronx is an old thing that goes back hundreds of years. But in fact, it wasn't until the latter part of the 19th century that we started seeing modern modes of mass transportation with the advent of railroad locomotives and steamships a little later on. When we talk about the history of transportation in the Bronx in this episode, we're talking about pre-colonial travel as well. Angel, tell us a bit about the very early modes of transportation used by the natives of the Bronx. Well, as we all know, the native Wegwiskeeks, and whom we discussed in episode 14, the Bronx Natives, used Bronx waterways for thousands of years. Made of the strong opamenchi, or wood of the chestnut tree, this native Lenape group carved out their muhula, or what we call canoes, to traverse the waters. One waterway widely used was the Aquahung, which is what we believe they refer to as the Bronx River. The Wegwiskeeks would sail up and down the Shetamuk, or today's Hudson River, from Dobbs Ferry to the South Bronx. East of the Bronx River, the native Siwanoi, also mentioned in episode 14, used their mihula to hug the eastern shorelines and find fertile ground and other resources in and around a place we call Pelham Bay today. As you know, there are a collection of islands that canoeists and kayakers still travel to today. In fact, Native Americans of the Bronx literally paved the way for modern roads we still use today. Take, for example, West Farms Road. This road follows an ancient Native American path that once led from today's Bronx Park all the way south to Hunts Point. English colonists once called this road Yay Queens Road or Hivetown Road. Barnes Avenue, between Gun Hill Road and Bussing Avenue, was an ancient Siwanoi path that English colonists absorbed into the old Boston Post Road dating back to the late 1600s. Even Kingsbridge Road was a former Native American trail, at least from Bailey Avenue all the way east to present-day Fordham Road. The colonists used it as they approached the King's Bridge that once spanned the Spitendival Creek. After the American Revolution, Farming increased in what we call the Bronx today. Large land holdings owned by former British Tories or sympathizers who fled were confiscated, giving the common folk the opportunity to own more property to cultivate. With the increase of more private enterprises, the need to travel to and fro to city markets had grown, since many more farmers were also selling. Major thoroughfares, such as the Boston Post Road, mainly used for stagecoach traffic and moving mail and other goods, were now beginning to be widened and paved. River traffic also increased with sloops and steamboats traveling to and from Manhattan. With much of the population growing in villages and towns, all mainly situated on riverbanks and shores, 
commercial traffic by water was still one of the most popular modes of transportation. Yet former native trails and new roads were being carved out to connect already established villages to newer coalescing ones. Major thoroughfares we continue to use today were very influential when first laid down. For example, the southern Westchester Turnpike was laid out over numerous native trails in 1727 to connect the town of Westchester to Morrisania. Both municipalities were growing in population and landscape that trade became one of the major agitators for the road project. Turnpikes were an old thing back in England, and that idea was passed on into the New World. Just imagine traversing a desolate road that was cut through the thick wilderness, only to stop after a certain distance to come across a small military outpost that collects fees or credentials. Gouverneur Morris, who we mentioned in episode two, We the People, wrote in one of his post-retirement memoirs of his days at Marasania that in July 1812, he believed to have been the first by carriage to cross the newly paved turnpike, as some of it ran through his estate at the time. Olga, when the southern Westchester turnpike was finally open, it cost six cents for every score of hogs or sheep, 20 cents for every score of cattle, horses, or mules, three cents for every horse rode, and twelve and a half cents for anything other than pleasure carriages drawn by two horses, and so forth. Well, that seems compounding given today's toll fees. Yes, but what was more compounding was the fact that as the new nation grew, so did its economy. After the war, New York was seeing a gradual shift of its cottage industry work now being done in factories. Also, a high dependence on steam power was becoming evident since machines needed to operate so that they can produce items on a mass scale to maximize profits. Then we see more of a marketing boom once the Erie Canal was completed in 1825. With new markets to pursue out west, the canal helped shape New York from a docile farmville into an economic empire. While the snowball effect of industrialization continued, other massive public construction projects, like the Croton Aqueduct, sparked more population shift away from riverbank and coastal villages and towns and into interior ones. Fresh and clean water was now becoming more available to fight fires and pandemics. With every advancement, the need to expand local and commercial transportation grew even more. In November of 1832, New York City will see its first horse-drawn street railway car emerge from Lower Manhattan. It was the very first introduction of the newly created New York and Harlem Railroad, which was to bring passengers from the hustle and bustle of Lower Manhattan to the suburbs of Harlem. Gouverneur Morris Jr., also mentioned in episode two, was the company's vice president and later would become one of our borough's strongest proponent of the railroad industry that will one day dominate the South Bronx. According to numerous accounts, this line was the world's first streetcar and would ultimately expand over the years with the use of steam power. It was not until the New York and Harlem Railroad crossed the Harlem River into the Bronx that our borough would undergo a major expansion of population, industry, and the rise of new villages that will coalesce around every stop on the new railroad line. These tracks are still used today by the Metro North Railroad. But before we continue, let's first take a quick commercial break. 
The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden, 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org. City Bike is expanding to the Bronx. Membership is only $179 annually. New Yorkers who live in NYCHA or receive SNAP benefits can take advantage of the discounted City Bike membership for only $5 a month. Visit citybikenyc.com pricing to get started. By 1842, the New York and Harlem Railroad was already servicing as far north into the Bronx as Williams Bridge. Once a small hamlet that sat on the east bank of the Bronx River and named after a bridge that spanned the river from the old John Williams estate, Williams Bridge began to grow in size as more New Yorkers ventured north for newer living. This was an example of how the railroad industry accommodated real estate speculation. It was hoped that the idea of bringing people outside of Lower Manhattan into the northern regions and beyond would spark a real estate boom. Yet, the results weren't as expedient as one real estate broker may have desired. Harlem and the Bronx were still bucolic and sparse. Only the towns and villages that surrounded most of the new train stations on the New York and Harlem railroads saw growth of citizenship and commerce while areas not serviced by the railroad still remained remote and inaccessible. According to Bronx history, the very first train station erected on the mainland was Fordham. Once completed in 1839, the Fordham station and its disembarking travelers would help establish the center of the village, Fordham. Soon after, St. John's College, now Fordham University, would establish its institution just to the east of the station in 1841 while at the same time, more people would venture out to the open countryside of the Bronx seeking a better way of life. One of those individuals was our very own Edgar Allan Poe. You can hear more about his experience at Fordham in Episode 4, The Bells. The New York and Harlem Railroad indeed became the precursor to our borough's mid-19th century boom in transportation. But more freight needed to travel as well, because as a village increases so does the demands of its citizens for goods and services. By 1840, Governor Morris Jr. was already selling large swaths of his family estate of Morrisania. Seeing more prosperous returns in the railroad industry rather than land ownership, Morris had facilitated the industrialization of the South Bronx when he sold land to an English inventor named Jordan L. Mott. In the 1820s, Mott had invented the country's first coal-burning stove in the rear of his dry goods store in Manhattan. As his business grew, so was the need to expand outside of Manhattan and seek land that would accommodate his vision of a metal-forging industrial complex. That land was in the South Bronx and would become 
Marhaven. Morris saw the opportunity to preserve a piece of his late father's estate just east of the Mill Brook, now Brook Avenue, and physically attached an island called Stony Brook to the mainland. He would soon call this piece of property Port Morris, with aspirations of converting the land into an industrial neighborhood with a deep port. Morris then financed and built the Spite and and Port Morris Railroad, which would be purchased in the 1850s by the Hudson Railroad. Yet, by the 1870s, major consolidation of various railroads running through the Bronx and Manhattan took place under the financial influence of Cornelius Vanderbilt, merging these railroads into one major corporation, the New York Central Railroad. Shortly after, Grand Central Station was built as a main hub for New Yorkers. Yet, all these railroad lines ran north through the Bronx, with hardly any of its rails connecting to another from the east or west. By the late 1870s, rail electrification was becoming a norm, and soon the Bronx will see the popularization of the streetcar, or as many of us in the Bronx would call trolleys. Streetcars date back to the 1850s in New York, with one of the earliest streetcar companies being the Third Avenue Railway Company. We don't give enough credit to the streetcar or trolley as being the precursor to the railroad locomotive in New York City. These horse-drawn trolleys were already laid out in Upper Manhattan by the 1870s. By the time they made their way into the Bronx in the late 1880s, most of these trolleys were run by cable car and later converted to electric in 1899. Many of the Bronx trolleys operated on trolley poles that can still be seen near places along Sedgwick and Bailey Avenues in the West Bronx. Conduit was run into the old propulsion cables. All of a sudden, the Bronx was covered with trolley tracks run by companies such as the West Farms and Westchester Traction Company, the Wakefield and Westchester Traction Company, the Williamsbridge and Westchester Traction Company, the Van Nest, West Farms and Westchester Traction Company, and the Suburban Traction Company. That's a lot of traction. <laughs> Crosstown lines were very important. They not only served as conduits from one side of the borough to the other, but as the previous railroad lines helped spark development around its stops, so did the trolleys help develop neighborhoods between those railroad stops. The Union Railway Company ultimately consolidated all the Bronx trolley lines in 1892. Then all its cars were electrified. The company received its famous nickname, the Huckleberry Line, because it was so slow that passengers were able to jump off the streetcars to pick huckleberries along 3rd Avenue and jump back on. Yet, just as the railroad industry underwent numerous merges and consolidations, the Union Railway Company was absorbed into the historic 3rd Avenue Railway Company, which reincorporated under the new name, Third Avenue Railway System. Now, all Bronx trolley lines were operated by the new railway system. But the days of the trolley were slowly numbered, as more elected officials complained about over-congestion and the push to modernize was felt on all sides. By 1920, the Third Avenue Railway System was already looking into bus conversion, while other cities were already replacing their trolley fleets with buses. By the 1940s, the Surface Transit Company, a subsidiary of the 3rd Avenue Railway System, boasted about having one of the nation's largest bus fleets, all powered by diesel fuel. 
when the Third Avenue Railway System took over, renaming itself the Third Avenue Transit System, it was the last straw for the trolley streetcar. New York City's transportation scene would now be occupied by bus, with only the embedded rails of the forgotten trolley car serving as a reminder of yesteryear. When we come back, we'll talk more about Bronx transportation. Don't go away. Get it, baby, get it! And now for a little segment we like to call Yo Angel. Yo Olga. Seven years ago, the Bronx celebrated an important milestone. We had a whole year of festivities and historic events that occurred. Can you offer us some insight as to why we partied so much during that year? Well, Olga, 2014 was a special year for us because it marked the 100th anniversary of the Bronx becoming the 62nd and last county of New York State. In addition, the year 1914 was the first time in over 150 years that the area we call the Bronx today obtained county status. You see, before it became the Bronx, the whole area was part of Westchester County, with the county seat located in the town of Westchester, now the Westchester Square community. It was a time when the colony of New York was experiencing growth under the English, and much of the lands of what we now know as the Bronx had yet to be fully developed or settled. Yet it also marked the time when the town of Westchester developed its own government, carving out its place in New York City history. After a major fire destroyed the county courthouse in 1758, the county seat was moved from the town of Westchester to the town of White Plains. It was not until a series of city governmental changes that led to the major annexations of the Bronx to New York City in 1874 and 1895 that the process of recognizing the Bronx as its own individual county began. When Greater New York was established in 1898, consolidating all five boroughs and thus making the Bronx its own, talks of becoming a county really intensified. With real estate venturers vying to develop the Bronx along its proposed subway lines, with its extensive lands ripe for urbanization and industry, many thought the county idea would be best since it would grant the borough its autonomy to handle the real estate boom and other legalities. The Bronx Bar Association also were proponents of the county creation, as they bulked at traveling all the way downtown to handle their business. With a new county courthouse in the Bronx, they thought things may be done faster and more efficient. After years of wrangling, political drama, and civic rallies, the people of the borough of the Bronx overwhelmingly voted yes on a referendum to make their home a county in November 1912. After more efforts to gain county status, the Bronx finally became one on January 1st, 1914, with a swearing-in ceremony of the new county elected and appointed officials at the Old Bronx Borough Courthouse on East 161st Street and 3rd Avenue. And now you know. On the streets of the Bronx Is where I want to be New York in the second half of the 19th century saw its population burgeon with the assistance of the railroad and railway transit systems. 
Older populations began to emerge out of the old lower Manhattan neighborhoods to explore the outer limits, which would become the city's five boroughs. Places like the Bronx, for example, were ripe for development and industry, while the railroads brought in the freight. Passenger trains were also used as a method of getting around. The city was dealing with its population almost doubling since the Civil War, and cheaper transportation for its rapidly growing society was sought. By the 1870s, elevated train travel was seeing its full reality. The West Side and Yonkers Patton Railway was the very first to implement an elevated line in Manhattan, when in 1868 it debuted as a single cable car line that ran along Greenwich Street, which was then 9th Avenue, to 30th Street. The steam-powered train's first runs were considered a success and eventually achieved the right-of-way to be extended to Spiten Dival. Yet legal troubles would eventually mire the elevated line's operation and was finally auctioned off and brought by the newly created New York Elevated Railway Company. Then in 1878, the Third Avenue elevated train made its debut. It brought service from South Ferry to a still bucolic 129th Street in Harlem for a whopping five or ten cents, depending on the time of day. By 1888, the L, as it was nicknamed by those who lived under its roaring tracks, was extended into the Bronx, making it the very first elevated train system to enter its shores. The Third Avenue L was indeed a major impetus that sparked more growth in the Bronx, which was at the time nicknamed the Annex District. It was a faster and less expensive mode of travel, especially for the working class of Manhattan and other parts of the city. In fact, the L, which was then operated by the Suburban Rapid Transit Company, by the time it reached the Bronx, was one of the major forces that helped transform the Bronx from a suburban oasis for the middle class and the well-off to a place where all can live and thrive. When the Rapid Transit Act passed in 1894, elevated and subway service, an idea that dates back to the mid-1860s, was extended to the far reaches of each borough with the new Interborough Rapid Transit Company, or the IRT, being the entity to make it all happen. In 1905, the Bronx also saw its very first subway stop at a now-defunct structure that sits in front of Hostos Community College on East 149th Street and the Grand Concourse, with the words Mott Haven blazed in terracotta along the top. Then in 1913, when the dual contract system was agreed between the city, the IRT, and the BNT, which is the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Company, subway tunnels and elevated lines were extended into the deeper environs of the Bronx, working in tandem to bring people even further into the Annex District. This was a major partnership that served as a precursor for future subway routes throughout the Bronx thus bringing the whole metropolis into a full population shift to soon-to-be-developed land. Yet as the Bronx trolley line stood to compete with bus service until the 1940s, so did passenger railroad service with the innovative subway and elevated train system. One particular railroad service, for example, was the old New York-Westchester and Boston line, which, by the way, never made it to Boston. The line had taken the right-of-way from the former New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, which served the East Bronx, Westchester County, and New England since the 1870s. The New York, 
Westchester and Boston was meant to be the alternative for rapid transit, with the advantage of taking commuters further north and outside the state line. Yet the railroad was illogical for everyday Bronx and Westchester commuters traveling to Manhattan, since it terminated at the Harlem River and did not continue on to Grand Central like the New York Central Railroad. Riders were left to make their own transfers and pay double fares. Somebody didn't think that through. When the subway service to Pelham Bay was established in the East Bronx by the 1920s, it was believed that the New York, Westchester, and Boston line will benefit from the continued ridership now that its commuters have an option to transfer into Manhattan-bound services. Instead, things turned out differently. Commuters found subway service just more efficient and less expensive than the nearby Westchester line. By the late 1930s, the New York, Westchester, and Boston line went bankrupt, only to leave behind its marvelous stations along its original path. All designed by Cass Gilbert, you know, the guy that designed the Woolworth Building, which was our city's very first skyscraper. Some of these stations are still active, but some have been totally abandoned. One of them still in use is the East 180th Street Station on the 2 and 5 trains, which was the old railroad's headquarters. We intentionally left out another historic yet popular mode of transport that saw a reemergence after almost 70 years in the Bronx. That's right. We're talking ferries. Ferries date back to the early Dutch days of New Amsterdam when service was offered from that settlement to Brooklyn, which is now Brooklyn. In the Bronx, we can date ferry service back to the 1690s when Johannes Vervierlen and his son Daniel operated an old ferry service in the vicinity of Spite and Dival in Marble Hill. Today, a Vervierlen place off of Broadway marks where their estate used to be. Early Westchester Village colonists also enjoyed ferry service to Whitestone, now part of Queens. During a good half of the 19th century, Early estate owners like the Ferris, Hunt, Desiriga, and Lorillard all operated private ferry service for their visitors. As outdoor excursions became more commonplace during the second half of the 19th century, New Yorkers from all over the city traveled by ferry to amusement venues along the Harlem River, such as Kyle's Park near Highbridge. When Yankee team owner Colonel Jacob Rupert purchased land on South Brother Island in the 1890s, he advertised 25-cent ferry service from East 138th Street in Mott Haven to see the New York Cuban Giants play on the island. During the same time, beer brewing magnate George Errett, mentioned in episode 15, Bronx Breweries, ran a ferry service from Hellgate Brewery Company on East 92nd Street in Manhattan to transport goods and passengers to the Bronx. One of the stops was East 134th Street in Port Morris, where two defunct landmark ferry gantries stand today. By the late 1940s and early 50s, ferry service was no longer an option for Bronxites. The establishment of more subway routes and the affordability to own an automobile were some of the driving forces that led to a Bronx ferry service. No pun intended? Oh, that was totally intended. Yet... After so many years, talks on the city level commenced in regard to bringing ferry services back to the borough. With the continuing population boom, New York City's robust transportation system still cannot meet the standards of such growth. Also, with areas still inaccessible to public transportation, such as Classen Point and Throgs Neck in the southeast Bronx, their location on the borough's southern shores 
begged for Manhattan-bound ferry service for Bronx commuters. Well, that actually happened. In August 2018, after many years of traveling by bus to connect with nearby subway stations, Class and Point residents now have the opportunity to enjoy ferry services to Manhattan, operated by the newly established ferry line NYC Ferry. It runs from the Class and Point community in Soundview to Pier 11 at Wall Street, with two stops in between, East 90th and East 34th Streets. The ride from the Bronx to Lower Manhattan takes a little over 45 minutes. Equipped with restrooms, a concession stand and bar, free Wi-Fi service, and enough space for bicycles to be stored for the ride, the latest Bronx Ferry service offers a breath of fresh air for the usual subway rider. One can now take in all the fabulous sights on the East River, with breathtaking views of Manhattan skyline and overwhelming bridge passes. Someday soon, other far-reached neighborhoods like Throgs Neck and Hunts Point will too have their own ferry service, bringing back the old feeling of water travel. Well, Angel, you're a great travel buddy, but it's time to cut our journey short. That's our show. Thank all of you for tuning in to our Go Bronx pod produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Additional support is provided by NYC and Company. Mucho thanks to the Huntington Free Library and Reading Room for serving as our makeshift recording studio. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. If you like us, tell your friends. And if they already like us, make some new friends and then tell them. For information about this episode and more, visit ilovethebronx.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter and get the latest and greatest news from and about the Bronx. As always, I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. Bronx for the yours.